Letter eighteen of Young Americans Abroad or Vacation in Europe Travels in England, France, Holland, Belgium, Prussia, and Switzerland Edited by J. O. Chules Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain Letter eighteen London Dear Charlie It was a fine clear morning when we started for Windsor by railroad, a distance of twenty one miles. The country is fine, but our thoughts were on the castle. At Slough we took an omnibus and rode into the town. It is a pretty quiet place of about ten thousand inhabitants. There are some six or seven streets, and they present but few attractions. The castle is everything. You know this has been the favorite residence of most of the English monarchs, and the scene of many a tournament in the days of chivalry. The castle was the work of William the Conqueror. John lived at Windsor while Magna Carta was extorted from him by his barons at Runnymede. Henry the Third did a great deal to the castle, but Edward the Third invested it with its great glory. This was his native place. The architect he employed was the famous William of Wickham, Bishop of Winchester, a man of great genius. He built the noble round tower. This was in 1315. Wickham built him a palace worthy of the hero and his noble son, the Black Prince. Edward the Fourth built St. George's Chapel, and Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth both made important additions to the fortress. Young Edward the Sixth resided here, and did not like its retirement and gloom. Elizabeth made the terrace and other improvements. When Charles the Second was restored, he brought a foreign taste to the improvement of the castle, and a great deal of elegancy was attempted, but which poorly harmonized with the Gothic, baronial style of Wickham's works. George the Fourth was a man of exquisite taste, and he employed Sir Geoffrey Wyatville to carry out the plans of Edward the Third and his architect. This was in 1824, and his immense labors have been successful. These improvements cost two million pounds sterling. I ought to say that Windsor Castle was the favorite home of George the Third, who died here. This palace stands on a lofty chalk hill, and commands the valley of the Thames. Around it is the finest terrace in the world, the descent from which is faced with a rampart of freestone extending about seventeen hundred feet. The whole building occupies about twelve acres. I shall not describe all the towers, for there are some dozen or fifteen. The round tower of Edward III is the chief one. Here he revived the round table of King Arthur, and established the order of the garter. From the battlements of this strong fortress you gaze upon no less than twelve counties. Prince Albert is the constable of this tower. This was the old prison, or donjon, of the castle. Here James I of Scotland was a prisoner, and here he wrote his sweet verses and celebrated nature's beauties, and the praises of his lady-love, Jane Beaufort. Here, too, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, long suffered, and sung the sweetest lays. We had a ticket to see the state apartments. Suffice it to say, we went through the Queen's audience chamber, the Van Dyke room, the Queen's state drawing-room, or Zuccarell room, the state anteroom, the grand staircase and vestibule, the Waterloo chamber, the grand ballroom, St. George's hall, the guard-chamber, the Queen's presence-chamber. All these are very, very beautiful. I was delighted with the Van Dyke room. Here are twenty-two undoubted productions of this greatest of portrait painters. Charles I and Henrietta were favorite subjects with the artist. Here are several of them and their children, and they are to be found elsewhere. The equestrian portrait of Charles I is truly a grand picture. You know the beautiful old copy of a cabinet size which we have in the study at home. 
it will please me more than ever, since I know how faithful it is. That queen of Charles's, who made him so much trouble with her popery and temper, was a wonderfully beautiful woman. I should not soon be weary of looking at her portrait. She was daughter of Henry the Fourth of France. Her fortune was hard, to lose a father by an assassin, and a husband by the executioner. The Gobelin tapestry, illustrating the life of Esther in the audience-room, is very rich. In the state anteroom are the most wonderful carvings of fowl, fish, fruit, and flowers, by Grinling Gibbons. They are thought to be unsurpassed in this department of art. On the great staircase is a noble colossal marble statue of that excellent sovereign, but bad man, George the Fourth. It is by Chantry. The Waterloo chamber is adorned with thirty-eight portraits of men connected with Waterloo, and twenty-nine of them are by Sir Thomas Lawrence. St. George's Hall is two hundred feet long, thirty-four wide, thirty-two high, and contains some fine portraits of sovereigns by Van Dyke, Lely, Kneller, Gainsborough, and Lawrence. On twenty-four shields are the arms of each sovereign of the Order of the Garter, from Edward III to William IV. The guard-chamber is a noble room, eighty feet in length. Immediately on entering we were struck with the colossal bust of Nelson by Chantry, a piece of the mast of the victory, shot through by cannonball, forms its fitting pedestal. Here, too, we saw the busts of the great Duke of Marlborough by Risbach, and the Duke of Wellington by Chantry, and their two banners, by the annual presentation of which to the reigning sovereign, on the anniversaries of Blenheim and Waterloo, they hold the estates of Blenheim and Strathfield say. There are figures in armour representing the Duke of Brunswick, 1530, Lord Howard, 1588, Earl of Essex, 1596, Charles I, when Prince of Wales, 1620, and Prince Rupert, 1635. These suits of armour are the genuine ones which were worn by these characters in their lifetime. One thing greatly delighted me. It was the gorgeous shield, executed by Benvenuto Cellini, and presented by Francis I to Henry VIII at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. The workmanship is entirely beyond anything I had imagined possible for delicacy of finish. I hardly wonder that kings used to quarrel for the residence of this artist. I know, Charlie, you are impatient to hear about St. George's Chapel, of which you have so often expressed your admiration, when we have looked at the beautiful engravings of its interior at home. It is very fine, and should be seen to be comprehended. It is of what is called the perpendicular Gothic style. The interior is divided by a screen and organ gallery, into the body of the church and the choir. These have side aisles, and in these are five separate little chapels. Two of these make up the place of transepts, and the other three, and the chapter-house, form abutments at each angle of the chapel. Now, I think, you can't fail to get an idea of the building. The choir is filled with the stalls and banners of the Knights of the Garter. Each knight has his banner, helmet, crest, and sword. The great pointed window was designed by our countryman, Benjamin West. The altarpiece was painted by West. Here is the tomb of Edward the Fourth, fourteen eighty three. He lies under a slab of black marble. In seventeen eighty nine, some workmen discovered his lead coffin, and it was opened, and the skeleton was in good preservation, and measured seven feet in length. Horace Walpole obtained a lock of his hair at this time. Here are the graves of Henry the Sixth and of Henry the Eighth and his queen Jane Seymour, also of Charles the First. Lord Byron says of Henry the Eighth's tomb. Famed for contemptuous breach of sacred ties, by headless Charles, see, heartless Henry lies. On the 1st of April, 1813, the coffin of Charles I was found in Henry VIII's tomb, 
and I think you will be pleased with an account of what transpired. I shall, therefore, copy a paper which is authentic. On completing the mausoleum which His Present Majesty has built in the tomb-house, as it is called, it was necessary to form a passage to it from under the choir of St. George's Chapel. In constructing this passage, an aperture was made accidentally, in one of the walls of the vault of King Henry the Eighth, through which the workmen were enabled to see not only the two coffins which were supposed to contain the bodies of King Henry the Eighth and Queen Jane Seymour, but a third also, covered with a black velvet pall, which, from Mr. Herbert's narrative, might fairly be presumed to hold the remains of King Charles I. On representing the circumstance to the Prince Regent, His Royal Highness perceived at once that a doubtful point in history might be cleared up by opening this vault, and accordingly His Royal Highness ordered an examination to be made on the first convenient opportunity. This was done on the 1st of April, 1813, the day after the funeral of the Duchess of Brunswick, in the presence of His Royal Highness himself, who guaranteed thereby the most respectful care and attention to the remains of the dead during the inquiry. His Royal Highness was accompanied by His Royal Highness the Duke of Cumberland, Count Munster, the Dean of Windsor, Benjamin Charles Stevenson, Esquire, and Sir Henry Halford. The vault is covered by an arch half a breadth in thickness, is seven feet two inches in width, nine feet six inches in length, and four feet ten inches in height, and is situated in the centre of the choir, opposite the eleventh knight's stall on the sovereign's side. On removing the pall, a plain leaden coffin, with no appearance of ever having been enclosed in wood, and bearing an inscription, King Charles, 1648, in large, legible characters, on a scroll of lead encircling it, immediately presented itself to the view. A square opening was then made in the upper part of the lid, of such dimensions as to admit a clear insight into its contents. These were an internal wooden coffin, very much decayed, and the body carefully wrapped up in care-cloth, into the folds of which a quantity of unctuous or greasy matter, mixed with resin, as it seemed, had been melted, so as to exclude, as effectually as possible, the external air. The coffin was completely full, and, from the tenacity of the care-cloth, great difficulty was experienced in detaching it successfully from the parts which it developed. Wherever the unctuous matter had insinuated itself, the separation of the care-cloth was easy, and when it came off, a correct impression of the features to which it had been applied was observed in the unctuous substance. At length the whole face was disengaged from its covering. The complexion of the skin of it was dark and discolored. The forehead and temples had lost little or nothing of their muscular substance. The cartilage of the nose was gone, but the left eye, in the first moment of exposure, was open and full, though it vanished almost immediately, and the pointed beard, so characteristic of the reign of King Charles, was perfect. The shape of the face was a long oval. Many of the teeth remained, and the left ear, in consequence of the interposition of some unctuous matter between it and the care-cloth, was found entire. It was difficult at this moment to withhold a declaration that, notwithstanding its disfigurement, the countenance did bear a strong resemblance to the coins, the busts, and especially to the picture of King Charles I by Van Dyck, by which it had been made familiar to us. It is true that the minds of the spectators of this interesting sight were well prepared to receive this impression, but it is also certain that such a facility of belief had been occasioned by the simplicity and truth of Mr. Herbert's narrative, every part of which had been confirmed by the investigation, so far as it had advanced, 
and it will not be denied that the shape of the face, the forehead, an eye, and the beard are the most important features by which resemblance is determined. When the head had been entirely disengaged from the attachments which confined it, it was found to be loose, and without any difficulty was taken up and held to view. It was quite wet, and gave a greenish-red tinge to paper and linen which touched it. The back part of the scalp was entirely perfect, and had a remarkably fresh appearance, the pores of the skin being more distinct, as they usually are when soaked in moisture, and the tendons and ligaments of the neck were of considerable substance and firmness. The hair was thick at the back part of the head, and in appearance nearly black. A portion of it, which has since been cleaned and dried, is of a beautiful dark brown color. That of the beard was of a redder brown. On the back part of the head it was about an inch in length, and had probably been cut so short for the convenience of the executioner, or, perhaps, in order to furnish memorials of the unhappy king. On holding up the head to examine the place of separation from the body, the muscles of the neck had evidently retracted themselves considerably, and the fourth cervical vertebra was found to be cut through its substance transversely, leaving the surfaces of the divided portions perfectly smooth and even, an appearance which could only have been produced by a heavy blow, inflicted with a very sharp instrument, and which furnished the last proof wanting to identify Charles I. After this examination, which served every purpose in view, and without examining the body below the neck, it was immediately restored to its situation, the coffin was soldered up again, and the vault closed. This state of things precisely tallied with the account which Herbert, the faithful servant of Charles, had given as to the place of his sepulchre. In this chapel, too, is the cenotaph of the late Princess Charlotte, who was wife to Leopold, now King of Belgium. I do not much admire it. The exquisite beauty of the windows, and the gorgeous splendor of the roof, will always make this place live in my memory. The terraces are very beautiful walks, and from Queen Elizabeth's terrace you have a noble view of Eton College. Of course we were pleased to see the distant spires and antique towers, which are so celebrated in the lines of grey. The college looms up finely, and greatly adds to the prospect. Eton was founded in 1440 by Henry the Sixth. The number of scholars is about 850. This college has produced some of the greatest men in England, and the young nobility are generally educated here. The college has two quadrangles, and the chapel is a fine Gothic building. All this region is beautified by the Thames winding through the valley. Here is the gem of villages, Datchet, where Sir Henry Wotton and Isaac Walton used to enjoy the rod and line. No one who has any taste can come to Windsor and not think of the immortal bard who has made so much capital out of this place. At all events, we wanted to see Hearn's Oak. We took a carriage and passed the day in riding through the great park, and took our way through the well-known avenue called the Long Walk. This is three miles in length, and has a double row of magnificent elms. It is directly in front of the south side of the castle, and terminates in a colossal equestrian statue of George the Third standing on an immense pedestal of blocks of granite. Nothing can exceed in beauty the beaches of this park, which contains three thousand acres. Immense herds of deer are seen under the trees. Nowhere have I seen such fine old trees. Here is a beech tree thirty-six feet round, seven feet from the ground. One oak of similar size is called William the Conqueror's Oak. We went to Virginia Water, the largest sheet of water, that is, artificial, in Great Britain. We saw the little cottage where George the Fourth passed so much of his time. It is a pretty place, but it only shows that the mind is more likely to be pleased with the simple than the grand. 
The gardener at the cottage, which I think is called Cumberland Lodge, showed us through the conservatory. We did not much admire the fishing temple or the floating miniature navy. The scenery is charming and worthy of Poussin. The walk by the water to the tavern cannot be surpassed. On our return we passed Frogmore, the residence of the Duchess of Kent. It seems a pretty, unpretending place. Nothing would repay the tourists better than to pass three or four days in this vicinity. Village after village, and villa after villa, claims the admiration of the traveller, and perhaps England has no more beautiful rural scenery than may here be found. We had seven or eight hours of perfect delight upon our ride, and when we reached the White Hart at Windsor, we were well prepared for doing justice to an excellent dinner. Our pleasure at Windsor was much increased by the company of a gentleman of high literary reputation, and who is distinguished as the author of several successful works. Affectionately yours, Weld. End of letter 18. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.